0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're sharing segments of a client call that was hosted just this morning on Monday, November 9th, by Goldman Sachs Research. The topic is the macro outlook for 2021 and specifically the impact of the U.S. election results on our economic recovery. You'll hear from Jan Hatzius, Chief Economist, and Alec Phillips, our Chief Political Economist. The conversation was moderated by senior strategist Allison Nathan. Hope you enjoy it.
1: It's now my pleasure to turn the floor over to your host, Alison Nathan. Allison, the floor is yours.
2: Hello, everyone, and thanks again for joining us on our annual Goldman Sachs Global Macro Outlook webcast. Um, I'm Allison Nathan, Senior Strategist in Macro Research here at Goldman Sachs, and I'm joined here today by our Head of Global Investment Research and Chief Economist, Jan Hatsias, as well as our Chief Political Economist, Alex Phillips. Yesterday, we published our 2021 outlook piece, uh, V, as in vaccine, uh, shaped recovery, uh, I'll kick off the call, as always, with a series of my own questions um, for um, Alec and Jan, but then we will open up the client Q&A. Um, please do submit your uh, questions through the webcast. We'll only be taking questions through the webcast, and we will get uh, to as many as time permits. So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. Alec, let's start, of course, with the U.S. election. It's clear at this point that Joe Biden will be president and the Democrats will keep the House. uh, But there is more uncertainty about the outcome for the Senate. Uh, Can you give us an update on what is going on there and what to look for?
3: Sure, Uh, thanks. So um, right now, uh, the Republicans hold 53 seats in the current uh, Congress uh, in, in the Senate. Um, they look like they have won uh, at least 50 seats, so uh, there are a couple of races that where there's still a little bit of uncertainty, but basically they've, they've won 50 seats. Um, that means there are two seats left that need to be decided. Uh, both of them are in Georgia. Uh, Georgia has a special uh, rule that requires that if uh, no candidate has reached 50 percent of the vote, then the election goes to a runoff. Uh, That runoff this year will be held January 5th, 2021. So that essentially means that we have a uh, 50-seat Republican uh, Senate, but with the possibility that uh, Democrats could then also get up to 50 seats if they won both of those elections, uh, splitting the Senate evenly 50-50. In that scenario, Uh, Vice President-Elect Harris would be uh, breaking the tie, meaning it would be uh, nominally a a uh, Democratic-controlled Senate. Um, That is probably not the most likely scenario. Uh, While um, uh, President-Elect Biden did win uh, more votes in Georgia... Uh, Republican Senate candidates also won more votes, and actually by a, a larger margin. So, uh, for instance, uh, one of the Senate uh, Republican candidates uh, there won uh, ninety thousand votes uh, in excess. So, um, the issue here is that when this is no longer a presidential election and instead is a runoff election, uh, turnout, you know, typically drops. Uh, in the last two Senate runoffs in ninety two and two thousand eight. Uh, turnout dropped by about 40 percent uh, in 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 those two examples, and those were a long time ago. But in those two examples. Republican candidates actually increased their support uh, versus the the prior presidential election. So this time could be different. Uh, This will be a very nationalized uh, race. There'll be a lot of focus on it, a lot of uh, resources put into it. Um, But nevertheless, it looks like Democrats probably have a little bit of an uphill climb in terms of winning both of those seats. So it looks like the most uh, likely scenario is a Republican uh, majority Senate, but a very thin Republican majority. But there is still, you Know, a chance that it could turn out to be a 50 50 split and therefore a slim Democratic majority for what it's worth. And in closing on that question, um, right now, prediction markets have something like a 20 to 25 percent chance uh, that it could turn out to be a Democratic majority in the Senate. So, you know, reasonably unlikely, but certainly within the realm of possibility.
2: Let me just ask you a very quick follow up to that, Alex. If the Democrats pull it out and we do end up with a very slim majority um, on the Democratic side, as you laid out, you know, policy wise, um, you know, how important would that be, really, just given how tight that majority would be?
3: So, you know, it really depends a lot on the issue. Um, I would say it's actually really important because uh, while you, you could make the argument that the, you know, marginal Republican senator versus the marginal Democratic senator might be much closer. In terms of uh, policy, than the parties are as a whole. What really matters in the Senate is the ability uh, just to get a bill onto the floor and have a vote. Um, just as one example, you know, right now with fiscal uh, stimulus. There's probably 60 votes uh, in support of a reasonably large fiscal stimulus package in the current Congress, in the current Senate. But the issue is just getting a bill onto the floor. And so, you know, once you have control of the House and the Senate, even if it's by a very slim margin, That allows uh, the majority party to use, uh, you know, various procedural mechanisms to push uh, legislation through particularly fiscal legislation. So you know, on some issues, it may not make that much of a difference. On fiscal policy, it would actually probably make a big difference.
2: Okay, great. Well, let's talk about the implications of all of this for fiscal policy. Where do we stand now?
3: So um, if, we, if we just make the assumption uh, for right now that we're more likely to have a Republican uh, Senate uh, next year, then the two main implications that come out of um, the election are, number one, that we're not going to see as much structural change Uh, in fiscal policy uh, as, you know, one might have imagined under a democratic sweep. So that means we're unlikely to see uh, any substantial uh, spending increases apart from fiscal stimulus, which I'll come back to in a a moment. Um, But so, for example, um, uh, President-elect Biden had proposed a $2 trillion infrastructure package. That seems, you know, reasonably unlikely uh, under a divided Congress. Likewise, we also probably won't see any substantial tax increases. So, uh, discussion of the corporate rate, other things like that, probably are essentially taken off the table for the time being. The second implication is on fiscal stimulus, and there I would say, you know two things change: one, the size and then the other is the timing. So on the size, you know we had imagined under a democratic sweep that you would probably see something like maybe two and a half trillion dollars. Of uh, fiscal support coming in early 2021, um, what probably happens now is you have a much smaller package. Call it something like a trillion dollars. So still, you know, pretty big. That's almost five percent of GDP, uh, but nevertheless, you know, smaller than under the alternative scenario. Um, it may also come a little bit sooner, and this is frankly really up in the air at the moment. So I don't think. We can really say for sure what's going to happen right now. But I think directionally, the odds of getting something done sooner have increased because there's just less incentive to wait until 2021 uh, to do something, given that Congress is still going to be divided. So uh, there are essentially two scenarios for what might happen on uh, fiscal uh, measures over the next you know, couple of months. Um, one is that we end up seeing Congress pass sort of a placeholder, very skinny package uh, at some point in December, probably ahead of the December 11th spending deadline, uh, that would just include a couple of you know sort of must-pass things that everybody agrees on: extending the expanded uh, unemployment insurance eligibility, maybe some small business support, and then leaving the bigger decisions for next year. The alternative scenario, which is probably increased in probability uh, you know versus where we were pre-election, is to have a bigger package pass in December simply because it looks likely that they're going to have to address at least a couple of things, and once they're already in the process of, of putting a bill through, you can imagine that it might turn out to be uh, a little bit more substantial. So where you know before the election, you would have said probably the odds of doing something in the lame duck session of Congress in December uh, were very low. now you could say it's probably, at you know, at least as likely that they do something a little bit more substantial in December. Uh, but regardless of the timing, you know, it looks likely that we'll end up seeing something on the order of a trillion dollars pass either in December or in Q1. Either way, it's probably more of an issue for growth in Q1 than it is for Q4. Um, but, you know, that timing has probably accelerated a little bit.
2: Okay, great. Jan, let's turn to you. Given the election outcome Uh, most likely election outcome that Alec has laid out, what does this mean for the overall uh, economic outlook? Yes,
1: thanks, Allison. And uh, let's turn to our global forecast table to uh, show you where we stand. Clearly, we have quite an optimistic forecast for global growth in 2021 and 2022. And the timing in terms of where we are above consensus and you know between the different years varies a little bit between countries but uh, you know if you just look at the global number we're at 6% for 2021 for relative to a bloomberg consensus of 5.2% and we're at 4.6% for 2022 versus a bloomberg consensus of 3.7 and the biggest outperformance in general we have in the advanced economies the united states and also the euro area especially if you look at not just 2021 but also 2022 but in the vast majority of cases we have a uh, an above consensus view now having said that the recent changes have been a bit on the negative side We're on net. We've uh, we've shaved our numbers a bit, especially for or at least for 2021. For uh, you know, effectively, one big reason, namely the COVID resurgence that we've seen in the U.S. and especially in in Europe. Um, It's also, of course, the case that there wasn't there wasn't really a blue wave. There was no you know, at least we think, no democratic sweep. Of of Congress, and as Alec explained, that has uh, led to a uh, smaller um, to, to, to a smaller fiscal stimulus package in our in our forecast than what we would have adopted in the case of a of a blue wave. But the what what's really happened is the COVID resurgence. And if we flip to the next page, um, I think one good way to look at COVID cases given all of the measurement issues around testing is to focus on hospitalizations. And here are hospitalizations scaled to the size of the population for many of the key Western uh, economies. And we've seen a very sizable deterioration um, in, in most places, especially in, the, um, uh, in, in Spain, in France and in, in Italy, so it's really Euro area first and foremost. We've also seen deterioration in the US uh, and, the, and the UK, but, uh, but it's you know, in particular the Euro area. And if we uh, flip to the, the next page, in response to this significant deterioration, European governments have, of course, imposed various restrictions on activity closing bars and restaurants and and shops and uh forcing people to come or or restricting people's movement come in in, and every country has been a little bit different but one way in which we capture all of this um, from an aggregate perspective is our uh, gs effective lockdown index which is based on a combination of official restrictions on activity and actual mobility as revealed by cell phone locations and in in the US we have not really seen any any change in that uh, so despite the fact that the US has deteriorated we've not really seen a, a substantial change either as far as actual mobility is concerned or as far as restrictions are concerned but in in Europe we've we've seen a pretty meaningful tightening in that index it's about a a quarter or so, or a little more than a quarter of the deterioration that we saw in March uh, and into into early April. so not as dramatic as what we had then, but it's it's fairly uh, it's fairly sizable. And so if you flip the page, we have uh on the basis of that increase in restrictions and the change in the virus uh, outlook, we have cut our European numbers. In the next couple of quarters, uh, we've slightly shaved on net. Also, our U.S. numbers come um, at least for Q1, but uh, but where we've really made a more significant adjustment is the euro area. In the euro area, we're now looking for a decline in real GDP on a quarter-to-quarter basis of a little over two percent, not annualized, which is actually eight to nine percent annualized. So it's a you know this is a sizable decline, obviously nowhere near as dramatic as what you had in the, in the second quarter, but nevertheless sizable. And then we're building in a, another weak quarter in terms of quarter and quarter changes in Q1. Uh, and, and the idea here is that these lockdowns basically spill into, into Q1, we're assuming it's a three-month period. And then in the course of Q1, things uh, start to pick up, but that only starts becoming visible in the quarterly GDP numbers in, in Q2. And I would just say that we have generally upgraded our numbers for Q2 and Q3 from growth rates that were already uh, uh, quite optimistic relative to the consensus forecast, but we've made, we've made further, further upgrades there uh, and that, that accounts for these uh, still positive annual numbers despite these downward revisions in the short term.
2: So, Jan, what gives you confidence in that re- acceleration in Q2 and beyond next year? I would say
1: two, two main things um, as far as the health situation is concerned. I mean, one, if you just flip the page, I think is one, one uh, important thing to note is that this virus does look like it's, uh, it's fairly seasonal. The um, temperature does seem to play a, an important role. And that probably accounts for a significant part of the deterioration that we've seen recently. This chart here just looks at the virus cases uh, or changes in average daily new cases against the change in average temperature um, both over the July to October period for U.S. states. So we focus on U.S. states because that's uh, probably a little bit cleaner than looking at countries because the U.S has quite a large range of, of temperatures, but uh, other, other factors are probably a bit more uniform than, than across countries, including how these cases are, are reported. And there's, a, there's a quite a strong relationship between temperatures and virus cases. So we'll be on the wrong side of that, uh, unfortunately, in, in coming months. But then, as we get into the second quarter in particular, we'll be on the right side of that, and, and, and we're assuming that that's going to be helping us as far as the virus is concerned and then even more importantly uh, if you if you flip the page, we have been quite optimistic about a coronavirus vaccine. Our uh, working assumption for the last several months has been that we would have a an FDA-approved vaccine by the end of 2000 or around the end of 2020, 2020 and that emergency approval would, would be given for vaccinations of high-risk populations at that point and that it, within relatively short order, we would see mass vaccination of the, of the population, which would get us to effectively herd immunity in you know sometime around the middle of 2000 and uh, and 21 and you know there there has been generally a um, uh, an, an improvement in, in the way people have thought about the uh, the the vaccine um the chart that we have up on the screen here shows the uh you know a basically forecasting tournaments for when a vaccine would become available. Um, this morning, we had news from, from Pfizer that looked very positive on the efficacy of their uh, vaccine trials. Um, you know, obviously, we haven't looked at this uh, in detail yet. And, and I should also always say that we're not medical experts. But I think the news flow that we're getting on on the vaccine front is highly consistent with our, with our optimistic view that a vaccine really will uh, make a very substantial difference to the public health situation. And then if you, if you flip the page, uh, we think that that's also going to make a significant difference to the, uh, to the economic outlook. So in, uh, in the chart here, we're showing the impact of a vaccine on the level of real GDP in the U.S., the euro area, and China. In the U.S. and the euro area, we're getting something on the order of 2%. So you uh, boost the level of GDP in, say, the second half of 2021 and by 2% uh, relative to what it otherwise would be because of the availability of a, of a vaccine. That's a, that's a pretty sizable uh, boost, and probably accounts for a significant part of our, our our optimism relative to the views of other forecasters. We're also showing China here. Uh, the impact in China, by our estimates, is going to be a lot smaller, basically because China has already uh, emerged from the downturn in 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 GDP that was associated with the virus. Output is already. Uh, largely back to normal, and so the additional boost that you're likely to get from a vaccine in China is probably much more limited.
2: But, I mean, how much would you worry about um, our above-consensus view if a vaccine is delayed or it's less effective than we'd hoped? How much
1: downside- I, yeah, I, I, I would I would worry quite a lot. I mean, my you know again, the, the, the news that we're getting is is obviously alleviating that worry. But if you look at these numbers and look at these charts, and you have a vaccine impact impact of two percent of GDPs, you know, if you if you take that away, that obviously removes you know much or all of the outperformance that we we think the economy is going to going to show, you know, especially as you get, then get into uh, next winter again, where we, our forecasts you know, assume a, a, a very significant positive impact from, from a vaccine, then that, uh, that would need to be downgraded.
2: Okay. And what about the other risks that we're hearing about, which is the risk of scarring or you know more lasting effects from the sharp downturn in terms of the labor market or bankruptcies? How, how concerned are you about that prospect?
1: Well, it is a concern in principle that you you see a, you know, temporary but very sharp hit to activity, and that l- l- leaves kind of lasting scars in the workforce. People get get thrown out of work, lose their jobs, and then ultimately lose their attachment to the labor force and their and their skills. And it's, it it takes a long time for them to 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 come back. Or businesses, you know in principle, viable businesses go out of business because of a temporary downturn because they run out of financing, for example, and that then uh, hurts the economy's capacity to produce even in the, in the longer term. In principle, those are uh, concerns that, that, that I think are, are quite valid and actually quite widespread among economists. That said, we, I would say, are again, on the optimistic side of this debate, partly because this is such a, uh, you know, what, what we're going through is, is such a clearly temporary hit to, hit to output, um, again, assuming that the public health emergency is, is temporary. And we, we think that that's, uh, you know, important because it gives policymakers the confidence and the ability to provide temporary support to kind of bridge this health emergency. And more specifically, the developments that we've seen in the labor market, if you if you just flip the page, have been pretty encouraging so far. So what I'm showing here is unemployment rates, just to keep it simple, in some of the major economies US, Canada, Euro area, UK and Japan you start with the European countries, unemployment rates have really barely risen in in most cases, and that's because the governments have been subsidizing existing employment relationships and you know through wage subsidies of some form in and they're called different things in different people in different countries. In Germany it's called kurzarbeit or short term work work arrangement. In in France it's called uh, chômage partiel, um, sort of partial unemployment, but uh, but but basically, governments have seen to it that that individuals stay in existing employment relationships. In the U.S. and Canada, we've had a uh, quite a different sort of story. We've seen very sharp increases in in unemployment uh, in the very early parts of the of of the crisis in in March and and April to levels in the you know 15% range to 20% range um there were a number of uh, statistical issues in some of these data so the labor department actually says that the US unemployment rate if uh, measured correctly would have been close to 20% however um basically all or initially almost all of this increase in unemployment was uh, in the, came in the form of so-called temporary layoffs. And these temporary layoffs basically mean that the individual still has a, an existing attachment to their prior firm and that they expect to come back to their prior employment relationship as the crisis abates. And that is largely what has been happening. So you look at the changes in the unemployment rate, you know, for example, in the U.S. employment report on Friday for, for October, and we've seen you know, very big declines in, in the unemployment rate in the U.S. from uh, you know, about 15% to about 7%. And there is still a, there's still a significant share of the unemployed, even now, even after this big decline, that is on temporary layoff and still expects to come back to their previous previous job, so we think we'll see continued improvement in these labor market uh, numbers. There will still be damage and there will still be it, it will not we're not going to, going to go back quickly to the previous empl- unemployment uh, numbers of three and a half percent in the in the u s but we we continue to uh, Unwind this uh, this crisis in the labor market at a pace that I think is has been faster than I think most people thought, faster than, than we thought, and, and and we think, but there's room for further improvement. Um, if we turn to the business sector, the the thing that mostly the biggest thing to watch, uh, if you turn the page, is what's happened to bankruptcies and bankruptcies have been surprisingly low in 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 many countries and in fact if you take a look at the uh you know what's happened to bankruptcies in in a range of countries they've actually been running not only below the levels that we saw in the previous recession global financial crisis but uh but even relative to where we were last year so on a uh You know, in 2020, 2020, we've actually seen fewer bankruptcies than in 2019. And, you know, of course, this is partially driven or largely driven by the support that we've seen from governments, fiscal support for for businesses, both large and small, uh, monetary policy support, support for the credit markets, and uh, and also forbearance from uh, from lenders and and financial institutions and you know of course if the health emergency were to last much longer than anticipated the patience to provide this kind of support from policymakers and and, and banks probably would eventually run out and then we you know we would worry about bigger spikes in bankruptcies but if it still looks like the health emergency is you know, ultimately, quite a temporary occurrence. Then we think there is a very strong incentive for policymakers to still be very supportive, and we expect them to be very supportive. So we 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 wouldn't really expect the spike in in So, but you know, tying all of that together sort of says I think we have a good chance as societies to keep these scarring effects pretty limited. Provided that policy stays as supportive as it ought to be in, in this kind of temporary emergency environment.
2: So, what does all of this mean for inflation? I mean, as recently as a month or two ago, the market seemed to be pretty concerned about you know, a, a sharp increase in inflation. But given the election results, um, you know, likelihood of divided government and this virus resurgence, um, is, is that worry now off the table? Yeah, I mean
1: I wouldn't call it so much worry as kind of confidence that we get get to the kind of 2% or even 2% plus kind of numbers that central banks are are aiming for. I think that confidence was somewhat greater uh, a couple of months ago and it's waned a little bit. Now again we've we've now got this this vaccine announcement. I think that's probably uh, helping uh, increase confidence a bit again. I would say our own view hasn't really changed, and you know our own view is basically that we're starting out from inflation well below target in many economies, and that's driven really by by two factors. One is some COVID-specific disruptions that we see especially in sectors like hospitality and travel and and so forth and those covid disruptions have been really weighing on inflation especially in the in in the spring in the kind of april may period those are unwinding and those are probably going to be replaced by positive COVID-related disruptions because of base effects. You have these unusually low prices early in 2020, so you get into early 2021, and that uh, then results in a, in, a, in a boost to inflation as you're dropping out these un, unusually low observations. So that's, uh, that's where a lot of this noise comes from that you, you see in the chart, the, the sharp increase in inflation that we're likely to see over the next six to uh, six to nine months or so. The other factor that's been holding inflation down, though, is that the economy is underutilized. And, you know, while the normalization is taking place more quickly than what we've had in, in past cycles, it uh, you know, probably still will be underutilized for at least the next uh, several years. It's, uh, you know, it'll take a while before we're, we're fully back to normal, even with strong growth. And that is the reason why, you know, even as we go into 2022, 2023, in general, our inflation forecasts are still uh, pretty low. And, you know, in general, below 2% or, you know, maybe, maybe at 2%. Uh, and, 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 of course, there are several central banks that really want inflation to be somewhat above 2% that before they would, they would react to that, uh, that increase. But but uh, we think you know slack slack is is diminishing, but there's still significant slack, and we think that's going to weigh on inflation.
2: So what does this all mean for central bank developments over the next couple of years?
1: Well, I think it's going to be relatively boring as far as policy rates are concerned, at least in the in the in the DM uh, economies, advanced economies. If you if you flip the, the page, as you can see for the major central banks. We have no hikes until 2025 uh, anywhere. We have had kind of early 2025 as our baseline for the first hike in the funds rate for a while. In the euro area, we've just pushed out the first hike into 2025 as well on the back of these very low inflation numbers and the uh, the deterioration in the in the near-term growth outlook, and also our expectation that the European Central Bank is going to move to a symmetric 2% inflation target, which means that they need to see more than they otherwise would have had to see for, for them to start hiking. So uh, policy rates, you know, very low. As far as the, the asset purchase environment's concerned, we we do expect additional QE in Europe, and at the at the meeting in December, we think they will add uh, you know 400, 400 billion euros plus to the uh, pandemic emergency purchase program. In the, the in the United States, we're basically expecting continued asset purchases of about 120 billion dollars per month, 80 in Treasuries. in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, We do expect a clarification of the timeline. Right now, they're just saying we're, we're doing this for now, but haven't really said for how long they're going to do it or what the conditions would be under which they might change this. But we think we'll get a clarification relatively soon, maybe already in December. And it's also possible that the Fed could increase the average maturity of these purchases if the outlook were to were to deteriorate, but uh, but you know it's it's very easy policy. they central bankers have been very clear that they think economies need a lot of support, and we don't think that's going to change anytime soon,
2: okay, great. Let me just um ask a couple quick questions about China. It does stand out as a major economy where we don't expect above consensus growth, even though it actually has been um, you know has experienced one of the fastest recoveries from the pandemic, as you mentioned. So, so why are we less optimistic about it going forward?
1: We're less optimistic because we've already seen such a strong recovery and and you can you can really see it just by focusing on the level of real GDP in when we, we have the third quarter numbers here. and as you can see, there was a huge decline in real GDP in Q1 just uh, as in other economies in just one, one quarter earlier, but then a huge recovery in Q2 and then further more moderate recovery in Q3. And now we're not just above the previous, the pre-pandemic level of real GDP, but we're actually basically back to the previous trend line or at least close to the previous tra- trend line for, for real GDP. So uh, the just the room for normalization in china is much more limited and this also relates back to the virus chart that i showed earlier where the boost that china could see from uh, a from a vaccine is likely to be much smaller just because there's not as much weakness to unwind now if you if you flip the page the 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 one one cost, if you will, of this very rapid recovery that we've seen in China has been that the policymakers have had to provide an enormous amount of stimulus. And that's been visible in the uh, on the fiscal side. And here is our estimate of the augmented fiscal deficit, which uh, is a, a broad measure of you know overall deficits across different levels of government and we have, we have seen a sharp increase in the uh, in, in, in that deficit we've also seen a significant acceleration in total social financing growth total social financing is basically a broad measure of credit creation that uh, has risen from around 10% to uh, between 13 and 14% definitely above the sort of rates that Chinese policymakers are comfortable with, so when you take this together, it seems to us and our, our China team that the uh, that Chinese policymakers are likely to take their foot off the accelerator, maybe tap tap the brakes a little bit and rebalance away from a focus on supporting near term activity and in in the direction of Uh, reducing some of the stimulus and thereby reducing the risk of future financial imbalances. So that's one reason why China is one of the few places where we're actually slightly below consensus on growth in 2021, where it's 7.5% for the annual average versus 8%. uh, And that means you know, more more subdued sequential growth. The annual average, even at seven and a half, obviously still looks very strong. A lot of that is kind of the base effect of the comparison with 2020 and especially Q1 2020. But uh, but but you know, we we think it's it, it, China is just in a very different cyclical situation, and therefore the policy is going to look quite different.
2: Alec, let me ask you a little bit about how much the election results um, could change the U.S.-China relationship, obviously very relevant to the CNY and, and markets more broadly. Um, and to what extent we are you know, embedding an end to the trade war? Are we going to see rollbacks of Trump tariffs? What are we really expecting at this point? So um I think you know prior
3: to the election we imagined that a Biden win if it occurred would mean an eventual reduction in tariffs uh on imports from China um but that that would probably take a year or more um you know a so a reduction uh, seemed likely because uh President elect Biden has been you know generally supportive of of international institutions uh, you know trade for the most part in, in general, um but also you know gradual because it would uh, probably take some negotiation to get a new agreement uh, with China and that that would probably be required in order to get uh, tariffs uh, down um also because you know there would be a lot of other competing domestic political priorities so that all seems still, you know, basically to be intact, though I would say we learned two things from uh, from the election. So one is that uh, president like Biden will be working with a divided Congress, which means that it'll probably put more emphasis on actions that the White House can take on its own. Uh, as we learned from the Trump administration, trade and tariffs are clearly in that category. So it arguably elevates the issue compared to what we would have imagined, um, you know, under a uh, a democratic sweep. The other is that, um, you know, if you look at the election result, it, it it actually is, you know, in the Rust Belt in particular, which was sort of the, the focus in many ways for political consider considerations around trade, um, it hasn't really changed that much from 2016. So if you just look across uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, President-elect Biden only won a few counties um, that Secretary Clinton lost, so you could argue with you know narrow wins in those states. Um, Biden might want to be careful not to reverse things too quickly. Um, I mean, my guess is that ultimately we still do see tariff reductions. That possibly, you know, given the election results we've seen, uh, it may take a little bit longer uh, to get those uh, through. And regardless, it probably will take some kind of an agreement, um, you know, reworking the quote unquote phase one uh, deal that President Trump negotiated. Um, the other thing I'll say just in terms of U.S.-China relations is while we, we are likely to see an eventual uh, shift in trade policy, um, it looks unlikely that we'll see as much of a shift in some other areas, for instance, uh, you know, export controls and technology restrictions and things like that, which have also become such a you know, source of tension between the two sides. So, you know, overall, it you know, it does look likely that we'll see a shift toward lower tariffs uh, over time. Um, but that's, you know, one of several elements of the U.S.-China relationship that that, um, you know, is in play. And I'm, I'm not sure that the others will change uh, you know, as quickly.
2: Okay, great. Let me turn to um, hit on a few client questions uh, at this point. Um, a lot of questions around the vaccine, given the importance of it in our forecast. Um, so, Jan, the first question is: Assuming the vaccine is rolled out unevenly globally, um, some countries will get it before others or regions. You know, what are the implications of that for uh, you know our economic outlook and in the prop you know, a process of that. If you could give a little more color on what we're expecting for the emerging markets uh, next year in terms of growth.
0: Sure.
1: So in general, our, and, you know, this is obviously all quite uncertain and a lot of it depends on, you know, which vaccine proves to be most successful, what the approval timeline is for, for different candidates, what the pre-buying arrangements have been with different governments uh, but in general, we do expect that the vaccine and the vaccination is going to occur most quickly in the advanced economies, U.S., uh, Euro area, you know, Australia, uh, you know, Canada, etc. Et okay. So, so I, I think that is a reasonable rule of thumb. If you look at our, vac- our vaccine GDP chart, we have a slightly earlier. Uh, impact on output in the U.S. than than in Europe, um, basically because of a little bit more pre-buying in the in the U.S. But again, that's quite tentative. It's really uh, probably more a you know advanced economies, which is sort of a mid 2021 issue, where where I think you you you're going to be largely done sometime around the middle of 2000 and, and 2021, maybe third quarter whereas in the advanced in the in the emerging economies it might take until 2022 more broadly on the outlook for emerging markets i think it's often difficult to answer the question what's the outlook for emerging markets because emerging markets are all quite different i think that's even more true now that because the emerging world really has been affected so differently by this virus we talked about china where we have already mostly recovered. You know, we've got other places that have been hit very hard in, in the summer where, where things are now improving somewhat. I would say India is in that uh, category. India was hit extremely hard, both from a health perspective, um, although it's obviously also a huge population, and certainly from an economic perspective with a you know, truly massive decline. In, in output in the in the second quarter, Latin America similarly was hit very very hard, um, but now appears to be improving, and virus cases are uh, still better there and and, and are generally on a, on a good path, probably also related to some degree to temperature. And then you've got the Eastern European economies that were uh, quite. Quick to shut down in the spring and avoided a large virus wave, but have recently also seen a very sizable deterioration in in a, in a number of countries similarly to to Western Europe, so they didn't get the western European um, wave in 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 March and April to the nearly the same degree, but they appear to be seeing a uh, very large deterioration now, so there we are. You know, more concerned about the economic impact, just like in Western Europe, we've downgraded our, our numbers for, for, for Eastern Europe, so there they probably will be contraction in a, in a number of places in the short term, but then also more room for recovery once we have gotten on top of the health situation. So it's not a very kind of pithy uh, uh, the summary of the, of the EM outlook, but that's broadly the groups of countries that we are we are focused on
2: okay, great. The other question related to the vaccine is, even if we do get approved vaccines one or more, and they are effective, how are we thinking about the willingness of the population to actually take it? What are we assuming, and what are we basing those assumptions on?
1: That's a good question i mean and, and it comes up quite a lot we are so the what's the basis i mean where where do we have Evidence on the willingness to, to take it, if we there are surveys of the population in, in many countries that basically ask people, "Would you be willing to take an approved coronavirus vaccine?" And as you'd expect, it's, it's mixed. Um, some portion of the population, maybe you know, 50 percent or 60 percent, say yes. And then there is a minority of the population uh, that says no. And then there are, uh, you know, some people that are in between and say it depends and I I wouldn't want to be, you know, right in the in the first group of people that are being vaccinated. Those proportions vary over time. Attitudes towards vaccines um, vary. um, Sorry, they, they vary across countries. Attitudes towards vaccines vary across countries there's there's more skepticism in some places than than in others but, but broadly speaking i think that's a that's a reasonable description our expectation is that you know at the start when you have approval or emergency approval or compassionate use authorization uh, as it's sometimes called you start by by vaccinating the highest risk populations that are probably where, where the benefit of getting a vaccine is very high, and uh, our assumption would be that these are populations that are also going to be quite willing to be vaccinated because they're likely to benefit more. And then I think you'll see over time that you know if the scientists are right, the vaccine is safe, the vaccine is effective. People who have been vaccinated don't get sick; they don't show adverse. Side effects. The rest of the population observes this, and then uh, gradually becomes more willing to to be to be vaccinated as they observe this vaccine in action. And how long does this this take? I mean, it's it's hard to know, and there's certainly uncertainties around that. But for us, it's likely to be a matter of months rather than a matter of many quarters or or, or even years. So we're assuming that yeah, we are not going to vaccinate the population overnight and demand factors are certain certainly play an important role in that. Um, but 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 at the same time we don't think it's going to prevent us from having a sufficiently large proportion of the population vaccinated um by, say, next summer to make a very significant economic difference, the, the one last thing I would say is that you don't have to vaccinate everybody. What you have to do is you have to vaccinate a su- sufficient share of the population that uh, in order to to generate uh, herd immunity and really reduce the risk of uncontrolled outbreaks. so if you've you've already had some share of the of the population that is probably immune at least for a period of time. Because they have been infected, we don't really know how what what that number is. But there are estimates of, you know, maybe 10, 10 to 15% in uh, in 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 the U.S. Uh, nobody nobody knows, um, I think. But uh, but then on top of that, if you vaccinate, you know, two thirds of the remaining population, and the the vaccine is, you know, 90% effective. Then you would be you you'd, you'd have you know obviously a uh, high proportion of of people you know two thirds uh, three quarters who are who are immune and in that kind of environment the the scientists and the epidemiologists basically say that there is herd immunity that prevents large outbreaks. So that's the broad way you know plenty of uncertainty around the details of all of this but that's the broad way in which we're thinking about it
2: okay let me give one last question to alec which there's a, a few questions quite a few questions about climate change energy policy given the likelihood of divided congress under uh biden what can you really achieve on energy policy
3: so um I, you know i would say there are probably. Um, two things that can happen. One is on the administrative side. So there were a number of uh, regulations that were um, in process at the end of the Obama administration, or in a few cases had been implemented, that uh, the Trump administration essentially, you know, either postponed or turned off. And it's likely, I think, that a lot of those will uh, come back So those would have to do with tightening uh, controls around uh, oil and gas development in the U.S., Um, not the so-called banning fracking or anything like that, but uh, restrictions around methane emissions, uh, other things like that. Um, Likewise, there are changes that can be made uh, to fuel economy standards, uh, as well as um, broader uh, carbon emissions uh, regulations. Uh, all of that obviously would take uh, quite a while, and it would be, you know, reasonably incremental because it would have to work within uh, existing law. But there certainly are some things um, that they, I think, are likely to do there. The uh, the other issue would be, um, you know, what could Congress still potentially do in a scenario where you have a divided Congress? Um, you know, the one thing I would point out there is that. It was never likely that you would see uh, sort of a unilateral uh, climate or environmental um, bill moving through Congress, even under a Democratic sweep scenario, simply because those things uh, were very likely to require uh, 60 votes in any case. There you know, might have been some exceptions to that, for instance, uh, tax incentives for various renewables, things like that. But for the most part, for a variety of reasons, this was always likely to be more of a, a bipartisan initiative if something were to happen. So from that perspective, it hasn't really changed very much. I mean, my guess is that what we will probably see Is some additional uh, discussion around uh, renewable incentives. So, uh, you know, whether that's solar, wind, biofuel, et cetera, most of that would probably come through the tax code. Uh, Some of it could also come through some additional spending programs. Uh, It's possible that if we do end up seeing a stimulus package uh, in in early twenty twenty one that you might see a few things tucked in there, and then the other thing that I think is still you know reasonably likely to come up for debate and something will have to happen on it is on infrastructure um, and while that's not directly you know energy and climate related, there could be an aspect to it that you know uh, takes that angle. Uh, And I say that something has to happen on that simply because there are some deadlines that Congress is going to need to hit uh, next year for uh, extending various programs. The main one would be uh, transportation infrastructure. So, you know, this does not mean that there will be no action. And it's actually, I think, quite possible that there would have been um, less action than maybe uh, some might have imagined if you had had a Democratic sweep. Uh, but nevertheless, it means that getting things through uh, Congress will be more difficult. And so the focus will be more on, you know, what can happen administratively. I should say also just to not to uh, uh, omit it. Uh, there's all, also obviously the question of, of uh, President-elect Biden getting uh, back into the uh, the Paris Agreement, which seems, you know, reasonably likely.
2: Okay, great. Um, I think we're going to cut it there. Uh, We've run a blog. Thank you so much to all the clients for participating and for the great questions. Apologies if we didn't get your question. We can always reach in our offices. Um, Thanks very much, Jan and Alec, and good luck um, today to the clients. Um, Have a good day, everyone.
0: That concludes this episode of Exchanges with Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in again tomorrow for a podcast with David Coston, the firm's chief U.S. equity strategist, on how the results of the U.S. election will impact the outlook for the S&P 500. This podcast was recorded on Monday, November 9th in the year 2020. Thanks for listening.